Uh, good evening. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Job. <coughs> After I became a Christian, I started scouring the interwebs for uh, sermons to listen to. And I, I don't remember what preacher it was or what church website it was, but I was listening to a gospel meeting series. And when it came to the last night of the gospel meeting, the preacher got up and he said, he was like deep southern accent. And he said, Will, it's been a 10-pound meeting. He said, I've gained 10 pounds by your hospitality. <laughs> it's just a weird thing to say. Um, it's been... It's been really enriching to be with you guys. Uh, uh, Andy has probably been the biggest influence in, in my understanding in the Bible, my understanding of how the work of preaching and teaching ought to be. And uh, I never dreamed or thought that we'd do a meeting together. Um, it has been really special for me. I haven't been able to spend a lot of time with Andy in the last, I guess, seven or eight years, however long we've been away from Minnesota. Uh, but I appreciate so much, Brent, letting me be part of this, even though I shouldn't have been part of this. Uh, it's been good for me to be able to <laughs> to be with you guys this week. Um, I want to show you a verse in just a moment that's going to be on the PowerPoint. But when you think about the last couple of years with uh, COVID and, and all the things that maybe you've seen on social media, have you seen people not handle trials well? In the last two years. And maybe you've been one of those people that didn't handle trials well. What would be the reason that you or what you've observed in others uh, has been seeing people not handle those things in a godly way, in a way that would give God, uh, show that you trust in him, things like that? What would be the cause of that? There would be a lot of causes for it. But I would, I would think that there was a whole lot of people myself included, not obeying what James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 say, where it says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you suppose that in the last couple of years there were a lot of people not heeding what James said here? That as an example in patience and suffering, go back to the prophets of the Old Testament and see how they dealt with difficult things. And then he specifically brings up uh, Job here. Now, why bring up Job as an example of steadfastness and patience to the audience of the book of James? You remember at the beginning of the book that they've been scattered from their homeland uh, we know in chapter 4 that the Christians were not always getting along with each other. They were coming to church with their baseball bats ready to kill each other. Uh, that's not really what it says, but they weren't getting along very well with each other. They were having financial issues in chapter 5. There were some of them that were going to work all the time and they weren't getting paid what they were owed. Can you imagine writing a letter to a group of people like that? What are you going to try to tell them that will help them deal with their trials to learn to be patient and learn to be steadfast? Well, one of the things that he says at the end of this letter is go back and look at what these people have written. Now, this word for steadfast, how do you know if you're steadfast? The image that I always have had of steadfastness, it means to bear under the weight of something. You remember the Greek god Atlas, how he had, he's bearing under the weight of the earth. He's like, don't drop the ball. 
is kind of the, the imagery there. The way that you know that you have steadfastness is if you're not justifying sin in the midst of your trial. That, that's one of the ways that you'd know. And so James is saying here, let me say it this way. Whenever you've gone through something difficult, what's, what comes easier to you? Prayer or Bible study? Can I just say it this way, what James says in this text? He says, when you're going through something really difficult, don't neglect deep Bible study. Is that another way of saying what he says here? To go back and read what these people went through and how they endured things so that you can learn some things about enduring and steadfastness and not justifying dropping the ball. Do the right thing. Um, by the way, if you do this and you take lessons from these people and from some somebody like Job, could you be an example to others in your suffering of what it could look like to be patient? Let's go ahead and go look at Job. I want to introduce... Job as a character. Uh, we know in the first five verses of the book of Job that Job is from the land of Uz. Uh, that's not one of the places that were allotted to the nation of Israel. Uh, this seems to be uh, happening after the flood, but before the call of Abraham. That God had people that were faithful all over the world, it seems, and Abraham was chosen from among other people in the world. But but God wasn't only working through Abraham, that there's these other people that you see. And it, Job, if he's well before Abraham, I suppose he wouldn't have been born at that point, but maybe they lived around the same time, I'm not sure. But God had people in lots of different places. And what we learn about Job at the beginning of the book is that he fears God and he turns away from evil. Have you ever noticed how the, the wisdom books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, how these books kind of speak to each other and have a conversation with each other? What does the book of Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom? Is to fear the Lord, turn away from evil. We know from the book of Proverbs that Job would be somebody who's wise because he fears the Lord. And so here's a very wise person who is also extremely wealthy. He's got 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. And when you add that together, that's 10,000, 10 being a number of completion. Can you imagine how big that farm would have been? Uh, but if you get closer into his life and you see his family life, he's got seven sons and three daughters. This is the envy of everybody. Like if he had an Instagram account and was always posting, everybody only posts like the best things about their life. But like, so... Can you imagine the kinds of things you'd be posting, like all of the, the sheep and the camel that he has and all of his kids that love each other? In the beginning of this text, the children would get together on their day. I, th I take it to be that that's their birthday. So whenever the kids had a birthday, they would all hang out with each other. He's got a beautiful family of kids that even love each other. We'll say more about that in just a moment. This is the guy that everybody would envy. Now, look at what happens in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and on his side and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. 
You notice here, by the way, the first five verses, if they talk about Job on earth, the next section talks about these things that are happening in the spiritual realm. This chapter kind of toggles, the first couple chapters toggle between what's happening on earth, what's happening in the heavenly realm. And here what's happening is God is, there's a lot of questions that I don't know how to answer in this text that I hope will get answered one day when we get to be with the Lord forever. But here God is pictured as like this, this king with this council around him. And then Satan comes up and God initiates this question. Hey, what have you been doing? Where have you been going? Did, when you were going all over the place, did you happen to notice my servant, Job? Did you see him? Isn't that a scary idea that God didn't say? Did you notice how corrupt those people were over there? Uh, did, did you notice the work that you've done with these people? He's pointing to somebody that Satan doesn't have and drawing attention to somebody that Satan might want to mess up. That's a scary thing that we see happening in the Bible there. Do you suppose that God could ever do something like that today? The church that I worked with in California, I wondered, and I'll say more about this in a little bit. I wondered at times, had Satan brought up that church or had God brought up that church to Satan? And then Satan did some things with that group. I don't know. That's a scary idea. But in this text, what Satan's uh, interpretation is that, yeah, Job does serve God, but he's doing it for a particular reason. Did you notice what it was that God's put a hedge around him in verse 10? That you've blessed him, you've given him all these goodies, and the reason that he serves you is because you're constantly giving him all the... I mean, look at all the sheep, look at his farm, look at his children, they love each other, they get along so well. Duh, he's going to serve you if he's getting all of those things. Have you ever seen people suddenly get interested in God? In the midst of a crisis, by the way, let me be clear, if that wakes somebody up and that's where they start, that's fine. But what about the crisis being averted and the problem goes away and now everything's okay? Are you going to still serve God? Are you going to grow deeper than what the crisis alerted you to? When Satan brings this up and he says, if you let me mess up his life and touch everything that he has... Then he will curse you to your face. What does it mean to curse God? Does it just mean to go, oh, I'm mad at you? I think the idea of cursing means to renounce your relationship with him, that that you're done with God. I I, I don't want to have any more ties or connections with him. Now, this is going to become the controlling question of the book of Job. Would you serve God for nothing? If all the things that meant a lot to you were stripped away from you, would you shake your fist at God and say, I'm done with you? Let's, I think it's fair to do this in this text, to take the language of would you serve God for nothing to its most extreme logical conclusion. If you knew that you were going to go to hell, would you still serve God? If you knew you were going to go to hell, would you still see that God is at least worthy of serving Because it's just true that he is who he said he is and we ought to obey him. Even if I know that I'll never be with him forever. Would you serve God for nothing? Look what happens in verse 12. In Job chapter 1 verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here, Satan's got permission. You can wreck his life and mess a bunch of stuff up. You can't touch him. We're going to say more about that in chapter 2 in a moment. 
But here, don't you like how this book begins? That we know that Job has got a righteous character. So everything that's going to happen to him does not happen because he's unrighteous. By the way, does the book of Proverbs teach that sometimes people suffer because they're unrighteous? Yeah. But does the book of Job come along and say, but that's not always the case? Have you ever gone through something really difficult and automatically assumed it's because I messed up? That might be true sometimes, but that's not always true. Everything that we're about to see happen in the life of Job, there's going to be four things that all begin with the letter F that uh, that gets harmed in Job's life. And try to think about these last couple of years and maybe the ways that you've suffered. Maybe think about the future and how you've seen some people worry about the future. I can't think of anything outside of these four F's. That could be categorized as ways that somebody might suffer. So be thinking about that as we go through this. But notice the first F is finances. Look at Job chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, now by the way, before I keep reading here, you're going to see a total of four messengers. We're about to read the first three. These messengers toggle between a group of people that attack something and then a natural disaster and then a group of people that do something and then a natural disaster. So notice how this works, uh, continuing in verse 14. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. What a terrible day. In the ancient world, your wealth wasn't brought to the bank. It was bound up in your animals, especially if you were a farmer. That's no different today. But in one moment with these three messengers, and it's almost like one is interrupting the next one about the different livestock and things that are dying here from all these different causes. Imagine learning in one moment that all of your assets have been completely liquidated. That this, the, the investments you've been making in the stock market, the savings account that you had, you go to the bank, you go on your website, and you see it's all zeroed out, and you don't know why all of this happened. Can you imagine that? Whenever I was in California, there was a, I, I called them like a whack-a-mole family. Have you ever played that game whack-a-mole where you hit one mole and then another one pops up somewhere else? There's some people that just seem like whack-a-mole people. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> Where it's like, <laughs> okay, let me explain. <laughs> it's like one difficult thing happens in their life, and then they get that solved, but then another super difficult thing happens in their life. And then they get that one fixed, and the moments that they get that one fixed, another thing happens. So this family was like that. And they had made no mistake, but suddenly one day when I got together with him, he was like, hey, like this thing in my life has gotten better, but we just found out somebody stole our identity. And all of our money's gone. And it's like I talked to the same guy a couple months ago and there was other problems again. And, and a lot of them cannot be traced to bad decisions that they made. If you lost everything that you had been investing in, would you curse God? 
I think about Revelation chapter 13 with the mark of the beast. Have you ever noticed in Revelation 7, there's the being sealed by God, and it's not a literal seal, but it's, it's a mark of ownership. But then, uh, and so if you have the, the seal of God, you might die physically, but you'll live spiritually. But then in Revelation chapter 14, if you have the mark of the beast, you can live physically because you can buy and sell and trade with others, but you might, uh, you might die, you would die spiritually. In the first century, there were Christians that if they didn't bow down to the, to the false gods around them, they could not buy, sell, or trade in their trading guilds. And so there's a lot of pressure for them to bow the knee to these other things, say that Caesar is Lord and everything like that. If anything ever happened in this society where you had to show some kind of allegiance to something other than God to be able to buy, sell, and trade, would you still, still serve God? Notice the next one. Family. This one gets subdivided in, in two different ways. Let me show you the first one with Job's children. Look at verses 18 and 19. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Um, have you ever, so if it's true that at the beginning of the book, when they would eat in each other's houses on their day, that would be their birthday. This is like, if I'm reading this right, the oldest brother's birthday, very special day, firstborn son, all of them are together in one house and this great windstorm or a tornado or something blows the house down and all of them dead in one moment. Samantha, uh, between our first and second kid, we, uh, she had a, um, a miscarriage. And it was early on a Sunday morning. I'll never forget that day because I was already planning on preaching Elijah raising the widow's son. And so Samantha, at 4 a.m. on that Sunday morning, had a miscarriage in the living room. And that, that's difficult. That was 10 weeks into the pregnancy. I cannot imagine... Ten children that you've spent a lot of time getting to know who love each other because they're spending time together. Look at that. All dying in one moment. Did you notice, though, that this text does not say that the children died? Have you ever noticed that? The text does not say the children died. Now, I believe that the children died, by the way. But did you notice what the messenger says? The messenger comes and he says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great windstorm from the wilderness struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon who? The young people. Have you ever had news that was so hard to share with somebody that you had to say it like in a veiled way? Because it was just too hard to just plainly say your children are dead. The wind came and it struck the house and it fell on the, how did he say it? The young people. And and Job knows exactly what that means. I remember when Samantha and I first moved to uh, Tennessee. And we were talking about this with some of my Tennessee friends who are here. Uh, Sean Kaplinger was born with hemophilia. And at age eight had a blood transfusion. And the blood donor had AIDS. So at age eight... Without having done anything wrong, this boy gets AIDS. 
And about two weeks after Samantha and I moved to Nashville, he's been in hospice care and he passes away. And I didn't get to know him very well before he passed away, but everybody always talks about how loving and and gracious and kind he was. But I started meeting with Sean's dad, Jim, and we'd meet up for coffee every week. And rather than shaking his fist at God and saying, I don't know why God gave my son a difficult life, his whole life, how could I serve a God like that? Whenever we got together, he would talk about how much he wants to be with God forever because he wants to be with God, but he wants to be with his son as well. If you lost a child or if you had a child that started to be doctrinally wrong about certain things, would you start to change your views to make it so you could feel a kinship with them still? Would you still serve God if something happened with your children? Job did. Now, notice the second part with his family is his spouse. We're going to skip ahead um, and go back in just a moment. But look at what happens in Job chapter 2 after Job's health gets messed up. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Uh, Mrs. Job here is kind of discouraging. Do you notice, though, that in verse uh, uh, verse 9, when she says, curse God and die, does that sound like anything anybody else has said in this book to this point? What did Satan say back in chapter 1, verse 11? Hey, God, if you let me mess up Job's life, he will curse you to your face. Guess who's become the mouthpiece of Satan. Job's wife. She's speaking the words of Satan here. She's become a conduit of Satan. Now, I used to have, I I think, too negative a view of Job's wife here. Because what is it that, do you think she's suffering in the midst of all of this? Her ten children have died. She's going through a lot of difficult things as well in all of this. I think what she's doing is calling for a mercy killing. She sees her husband suffering. We've lost everything. Job, this is only going to continue unless you renounce God and say you're done with him. And then you can die and the suffering will be over. I see misguided compassion in her. But at the same time, uh, your spouse ideally is going to help you get to heaven. And... um, I just think about this from when I was still living at home in Minnesota. But I remember whenever I was leaving my house to go to Wednesday night services or Bible studies or Sunday or whatever. Every time I would leave home, like close the door and my mom and dad were standing down in the basement where the door was. And I shut the door every time how mad they were that I was leaving. I can't imagine being married to somebody where that's that's what it's like. If you were in a situation like that, would you still keep serving God? Maybe another way that you could think about the spouse thing. Uh, in my vast amount of experience, um, which is not much, the biggest reason I've seen young people fall away is out of pursuit for a spouse. That's the biggest reason I've seen people fall away. Is they can't find anybody at church or whatever, and and then the, maybe they lower their standards or what, whatever, whatever all the things are and all the stories that I've known, and I've known a lot of stories of this. They end up being with somebody that wrecks their faith. 
if being a servant of God meant that you might have to be single a little bit longer, would you do it for the Lord? Notice the next one is Job's flesh. Go back and look at the context of what we just looked at. Look at Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Uh, Here's Satan's theory in this text that you might be able to mess up somebody's circumstances and all the things that are around them. But as soon as you let me touch somebody's health, then they'll go different. Um, Do you think Satan knew that by experience? Do you think Satan had ever messed up somebody's family and and finances and stuff like this? And they, they still stood strong. But then as soon as I do something to their health, then they're done. Do you, of all the things that Satan could have, do you know, you see that God gives Satan like free range, do whatever you want with his body. And the thing Satan chooses to do is give him boils. I imagine that they would have hurt terribly. If Satan's got free range, boils is what he goes for, I guess. And while Job is sitting there, he's taking bo- broken pieces of pottery, probably from the house that had been fallen over or something like this. And I, I imagine him scraping the dead skin off of him or, or, or some, something like that. This is not a good, not a good picture. Uh, you can't lay down. You can't stand up. No position is comfortable. Since becoming a Christian, one of the things that I've uh, started doing that I never did before is I started reading. And I think you can learn from books. I think you can learn from crickets. I think you can learn from things like everything. I, but I, I never really tried to learn from books until I became a Christian. And one of the things that I've done a lot is I've gone to like bookstores and seen what are the biggest Christian. You see that Christian books that people are reading right now? And there's, they always go in like different waves of things. Like for a couple of years, this is kind of a thing a lot of people are writing about. And then another time, this is kind of a thing. There was a fad for a little while where people were writing books about physical health in the Bible. Body built by God. The Daniel Fast. There's another book that I saw that was called What Would Jesus Eat? And the whole book's thesis is that you better not eat GMO foods because Jesus certainly didn't. Because it didn't exist back then. A lot of these people have left a lot of money on the table. There's no John the Baptist diet book. There's no Eli the Priest diet book about taking the fat from the sacrifice. There's a lot of money on the table still. (laughs) But the idea of some of these other books, the Daniel Fast, are if you do the Daniel Fast... Then you'll have a, a healthier, but you do these things that the Bible says, and then you'll have these, these health benefits from it. And then you get to the book of Job who loves God and his health is messed up and wrecked. Do you suppose it would ever be possible that people out of fear of losing their life would stop serving God? Is that one of the things that Satan wants to even scare you about? I think that's pretty relevant. Notice the the last F is friends. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 11. 
Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now, I take it that these friends of Job are his best friends. Like, these would actually be good friends. They're coming with the right motives in verse 11. How many of you have ever had that moment where somebody's really sick in the hospital and you go, Oh, great, I love going to the hospital. I, I tell you, if I heard about what had happened to Job and I was one of his fringe friends, I would not be there. This is a horrid situation. In fact, if I were one of the friends, I wouldn't want to get close to Job because like lightning's fallen from heaven and tornadoes have come. If I get too close to him, could I die? Can you imagine the courage that it would take to go to Job in these circumstances? These are good friends. But uh, once they open their mouth, they've got these ideas that, that if something bad happens in your life, it's certainly traceable to some bad thing that you've done. And so they're looking at Job and they're thinking about their ideas about God and justice. And then throughout the whole book, they just start hammering him with, you've got to confess what you've done. Just come clean. We want you to have these things gone, but you've got to come clean with what you've done. Look how Job summarizes them in Job 16. There's a couple times where Job gives his assessment of his friends. In Job 16, 1 and 2. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. You guys stink at what you're trying to do. If you had friends that forsook you, would you still serve God? I'll never forget shortly after I became a Christian. My family had an interesting dynamic in it where my mom and dad got to know my friends really well. And it wasn't like a weird thing. So I had a really good friend named Brian. We were in Boy Scouts together. Uh, we just shared life together. He was just my best friend. And uh, he slept over one night after I became a Christian at our house uh, on a Friday. And then Saturday morning, I had to go to work early. And it wasn't unusual for Brian to stay at my mom and dad's house for a little while and just chit-chat because they were all kind of friends too. So I go to work. And after that day, Brian stops talking to me. And up to this point, Andy's had a study with Brian and I, and I think he was making good headway towards possibly becoming a Christian. Just totally stops talking to me. And I, I was trying to figure out what happened, and my mom eventually told me a couple weeks later, oh yeah, Brian, I told him that you joined a cult, and I told him to not talk to you anymore. That was hard. Can you imagine... Like it, it's it's hard when the person's not a Christian. I, I, I but I, how much harder is it when somebody is a Christian? When, when you're you already share in the blood of Christ, and and you already have that connection with each. Have you ever been wronged by another Christian? Have you ever seen people walk away from the Lord because of that? You hypocrites. Yeah, and if you have the eyes to see that we're all hypocrites, stay and help us change. I guess. We see who the hypocritical one is in that situation. You know, one of the things about faithful people, like in the Gospel of Mark, have you ever noticed how faithful people in the Gospel of Mark have to look past the crowd? The crowd is always like a barrier to faith. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, even in Luke 19, where Zacchaeus, the wee little man, has to climb up the tree because there's this crowd of people that are disgusted with him. 
And when Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus and he says, I'll come to your house today. Can you imagine the look on the faces of all the Sadducees and Pharisees around? Gross. How can Jesus hang out with this guy? Do you think it would have been hard for Zacchaeus to look past these religious people that are crowding up around Jesus and see Jesus for who he is? That's what faith does. If you've ever had a friend in the Lord who stabbed you in the back or hurt you in some way, would you ever use it as an excuse to walk away from God? Well, what's the verdict of all of this? The question would be, was Satan right? Go over to Job 42. And we know that throughout the book of Job, that Job starts to question God and demand answers from God. But throughout the book, he does not ever curse God. He says some things that he shouldn't have said. And he's going to have to repent for that. We'll see that here in just a second. But what God does at the end of the book of Job is God takes Job on a trip to the zoo. And he says, look at the ostrich. Look at these giant animals that I've made. Were you there when I made the boundaries for the lands and for the waters? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And as he's showing him all these things about the animals or describing these things to him, one of the things that God brings up is I care for these animals and I care for those animals. And do you have the wisdom to know how any of these things were made? And you've been asking questions like if I could stand before God, why can't I stand before God? And I would win if I were to argue my case that I am innocent. By the way, one of the interesting things about Job is that when his friends kept saying you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. He never admits to it. Do you know how much we define ourselves based on what other people think about us? He held fast to his integrity, but he started to go too far in some things by demanding a court case with God. Look at Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, he repents in dust and ashes, not for cursing God, but for some of the ways he went too far in speaking. He repents in dust and ashes, never even curses God. But at what point is he repenting here? Has he received any of his finances back? Has his health gotten better? Has his family all come back? Are his friends all nice to him now? Before he has anything restored to him, he repents. The question, would you serve God for nothing? Yes. You see that there? What about you? Would you have that same kind of faith? One other thing about this. Remember the passage that we started with in James 5, where it talks about you've seen the the mercy of the Lord in the book of Job. Aren't you glad that James says that? I remember the first time I ever read the book of Job, my first impression was not that God is merciful. But then you've got somebody like James saying, well, you're supposed to see that when you read it. In what ways do you see God's mercy towards Job? Well, if you loop the book of James back into this, the book of James ends by talking about steadfastness and it begins by talking about it as well. James chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 talks about the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, I want to be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. I want to be mature in the Lord. But the channel by which that happens is by me but being steadfast, not dropping the ball in the midst of suffering. 
I, I don't know this by experience, obviously, but working out. If you work out, like let's say that you're doing the, the what's that thing called? Curls. With the, what are they called? Dumbbells. The dumbbells, those things. Thank you. So if you're doing the curls, like let's say you do like one, okay, I got this, two, I got this, three, feeling a little weaker, four. Isn't it odd that when you're working out, you're feeling weaker and weaker and weaker, but what's really happening is you're getting stronger? It's a weird thing. For Job, there was times where maybe he was feeling weak, but he never cursed God. Have you ever felt weak in the midst of your trials? I don't know how I can keep going. This is so difficult, but I haven't cursed God, but I feel like I'm getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Do you know what that feeling of getting weaker really is? If you don't give up, it's actually you getting stronger. That's what it looks. That's what it's like to actually work out. Do you suppose it was God's mercy in, in this whole book that Job's character was able to be refined? You can see points in his speeches where he's, he reaches a new plateau of understanding something and he never reverts back to some of the things he said before. You see his growth throughout the book. Would that be God's mercy? That he allows you, your character, character to be cultivated. Has that happened for you in the last two years? We're in the midst of all the things that people are fighting about and worrying about and struggling with, have you seen demonstrable growth in you? Well, I think that's one way that you see God's mercy in the book, but there's another way. You see Job being blessed in his latter days. Look at Job chapter 42, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Uh, there's a Job 42. You ever heard people say that phrase before? There's a Job 42, there's a Job 42, there's a Job 42. That when you're going through something really difficult, is it true that there's going to be blessings in the latter days for you? And would that be a demonstration of God's mercy? A place where there's no more tears, a place where everything is perfect. Have you ever noticed in this text that the animals are doubled? But do you know what's not doubled are the children. And people might have different theories and ideas on why the animals are doubled, but the children are not. Here's my stab at it. My argument would be that Job's children were doubled. The first set of animals that he lost, the 7,000 sheep, the 3,000 camels, when they died, they're gone, right? Forever. When he lost his first set of 10 children, are they gone forever? No. So when he has 10 more kids, his kids were doubled. The animals are gone and they're dead and that's it. Job's children were doubled. This might be one of the hints in the book of Job of an afterlife. Uh, It's hard to see it all the time in the book of Job, but this might be one of the strongest hints of that. And I think that through the eyes of faith, perhaps Job could have understood some of these things. I don't know how much. But this, have you ever thought about how much Job looks forward to Jesus? Jesus had nothing for finances. He had nowhere to lay his head at night. Uh, Job, Job's, or, uh, Jesus's family thought that he was crazy. Jesus's flesh was torn open on the cross. And Jesus's friends, for the most part, forsook him while he was on the cross. There's this statement in Job 19.25 where Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. 
You could argue in Job chapter 19 that when Job says this, what he's saying is there's going to be some way I'm going to be vindicated one day. It's going to happen somehow. He might not know exactly how it's going to happen. But ironically, what he says here ends up happening in Jesus, who ended up having the similar kinds of sufferings that Job had and also remained steadfast. And because Jesus did that for us, we also have a Redeemer that lives and will stand upon the earth and has, has stand, stood upon the earth and can forgive us. Um, one final question and then I'm done. Who understands more about God? Job in the book of Job or us? Job had a narrow understanding of God. He didn't have the whole revelation of God's word and everything like that. We've got the full revelation. Job, who had a narrower picture of God, remained steadfast. Will we, who have a wider picture of God, remain steadfast? I don't know what this next year brings. Maybe there's areas in which we need to repent from how we handled some of the things this last year. But let's take as an example in patience and suffering Job. And as we do that and digest that into our hearts, then we can be an example to others. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for your kindness this week. This has been such a blessing to be with all of you. We'll have a break and then Andy will speak.